0: In a recent episode, we mentioned that some Civil War cavalry raids look an awful lot like heists. In fact, Civil War cavalry was a a pretty good training ground for a career as an outlaw, if one were so inclined. Uh, If you wanted to pinpoint a single time and place as the genesis of the, uh, the Wild West gunslinger archetype, a strong candidate. Is the guerrilla war in Missouri? More than a few of the most famous names of the Wild West era saw action in the Missouri fighting, as uh, depicted in Ang Lee's 1999 movie Ride with the Devil, which I recommend. Uh, Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok, two names you probably know, both served as scouts for the Union Army in Missouri. But the most notorious Missouri veterans were almost certainly the famous James Younger Gang, or James Gang, which was made up mostly of former Confederate partisans, veteran Missouri bushwhackers. Technically, Missouri was not part of the Confederacy, but with the exception of a fairly uh, large German Catholic population centered around St. Louis, public opinion in Missouri was more inclined toward the South. Union forces took control of the state early in the war and held it under martial law throughout. In keeping Missouri in Union hands, they had to deal with fierce opposition from local partisan bands who were known as bushwhackers. The fighting in Missouri is sometimes overlooked uh, in, in big picture analyses of the Civil War, but it was some of the most brutal of the entire conflict with summary executions of guerrillas and civilian union loyalists, a regular occurrence. Now, Frank James and his better-known little brother were from a firmly pro-Southern slave-holding Missouri family, sons of a Baptist minister and hemp farmer who uh, died prospecting for gold in California uh, when the boys were still in elementary school age. Frank met Cole Younger while the two rode with William Quantrill, an Ohio-born 20-something former schoolteacher who was one of the war's more effective partisan leaders uh, until he died in May 1865 in a firefight with Union ambushers near Louisville. Uh, you'll note Quantrill was still fighting a month after Appomattox. Frank James's partner, Cole Younger, was from a pro-Union family, but at age 18, he had joined up with Quantrill after Younger's Unionist father was murdered by a federal soldier. Cole Younger and Frank James survived several years as bushwhacking guerrillas and then applied the skills that they had learned, uh, mostly uh, living on the run and and professional-level gunplay, toward a new profession, bank robbery. The pair initially joined up with a gang of other Missouri guerrilla veterans led by Archie Clement, and when Clement was killed while resisting arrest, leadership of the gang fell upon James and Younger. Of course, the most famous member of the James Younger gang, maybe the most famous Wild West outlaw of them all, was Frank's little brother, Jesse James. Jesse James's introduction to guerrilla fighting came in 1863. A Unionist militia unit raided the family farm looking for Frank, who was a, a well-known bushwhacker by that point in the war. And when they didn't find who they were looking for, they horsewhipped 15-year-old Jesse and beat and hanged without killing his stepfather. Uh, The next time Frank came back to the family home in Clay County, Missouri, Jesse left with him to join the partisan band. Frank and Jesse and Cole Younger spent the final years of the war fighting with bloody Bill Anderson. They took part in fair fights with militia and union regulars, sustained serious gunshot wounds, ambushed unsuspecting federal soldiers who surrendered and were then summarily shot, and also participated in what can be fairly called cold-blooded murders. Jesse himself was shot by a Union Cavalier after surrendering, though he survived. Jesse James later recounted being wounded seven different times during his days as a guerrilla, including twice in the same lung. Needless to say, these aren't the kind of experiences that you just set aside once the war ends. It's one thing to be part of an organized army that squares off with another organized army and then concludes hostilities with an armistice negotiated by the generals. Guerrilla warfare is a different animal. And fighting in Missouri didn't end with the war so much as gradually taper off. Jesse James recalled of life in Missouri in the early aftermath of the Civil War, quote, My life was threatened daily. And I was forced to go heavily armed. The whole country was full of militia, robbing, plundering, and killing. End quote. And what he leaves out of that quote is that he was very much a part of that uh, militia that was robbing and plundering and killing. So he kept his pistols either on his person or by his side at all times. And remember, he's still only like eighteen years old. Now, many bushwhackers were able to successfully. Uh, reintegrate into civil society, resuming life as small farmers or settling down further west outside of Missouri. But some of the partisan units simply opted not to disband. And if you're a bushwhacking guerrilla unit, and the war ends, and law and order and civilian government reemerge from the quagmire, and you decide to stay in the saddle, continue making your way through life on your skill with a revolver, Well, at that point, you're not a guerrilla unit anymore. You're an outlaw gang. And sure enough, in February 1866, the James brothers and Cole Younger were allegedly involved in what you might say was an event of historical significance. The Clay County Savings Association, a bank that was owned by officers in the pro-union Missouri militia, was robbed in what is generally considered the first example of an American bank being robbed at gunpoint during regular business hours and when there wasn't a war going on. And please make note of that final qualifier. It was the first daytime armed robbery in peacetime. More about that later. But I need to throw in another qualifier, too. The James brothers are usually credited with that robbery of the Clay County Savings Association. But that's due in part to their subsequent history and the geography making sense. Uh, you might say that there's uh, circumstantial evidence, but uh, no direct evidence. So we don't, uh, we don't know with absolute certainty that they, they did actually participate. What we do know is that the brothers helped spring other criminals, and we have to call them at this point uh, criminals, uh, helped spring them from prison in a deadly jailbreak. And we can also say with certainty that they, along with Cole Younger and a few other associates, were implicated in numerous other bank robberies, many of which resulted in in fatalities of gang members, law enforcement, and bystanders. Uh, They also robbed stagecoaches, and they robbed trains. From December 1869, when Jesse James entered a Missouri bank Asked for change for a hundred, and then promptly shot the banker in the heart uh, until the day he died. Jesse James had a bounty on his head. Often it would be the largest sum that the the governor of the state or the legislature could legally offer. Uh, sometimes supplemented by corporate donations. And though the James Younger gang of former bushwhackers started mostly in Missouri and Kentucky, uh, their geographic reach ended up being impressive, with holdups throughout the Midwest, the West, and South. Nearly 30 altogether, though there's some room for debate over the precise number. The total haul uh, over the course of the James Gang's career ended up being somewhere uh, between 200000 and $250,000 in 1870s money. With all that said... There's a good chance that uh, the James Younger gang might have been a historical footnote, and Jesse James, in particular, would never have acquired anything resembling the legendary status he still enjoys if it wasn't for some highly favorable press coverage. The Kansas City Times, which was owned and operated by a former Confederate with an abiding hatred of Reconstruction-era Republicans, ran numerous flattering pieces about the gang and especially about young Jesse and published letters to the editor penned by Jesse James himself in the press coverage the james younger gang well they weren't a collection of murderous criminals uh, forged in violent guerrilla warfare as very young men and then not capable of of reacclimating to civilized society no they were they were folk heroes carrying on the spiritual struggle against commercial and political exploitation by those dastardly Yankee Republicans. Short, Jesse James, well, he was implicated in, in, a, in a long list of violent crimes, and he had a price on his head. But wasn't that also true of Robin Hood? Or as, as Jesse James, well, as he described it himself uh, in one of his letters to the editor, quote, "'We are not thieves.'" We are bold robbers. I am proud of the name, for Alexander the Great was a bold robber, and Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte. End quote. The newspaper stories emphasize that the targets of the James Younger Gang were usually Yankee institutions, northern carpetbaggers economically exploiting the defeated South. They didn't rob the passengers on a targeted train, they robbed the railroad itself and the proceeds were partially redistributed to the needy common people suffering under the yoke of tyrannical occupation government. Jesse only shot villains who had it coming, and he only stole from wealthy banks and railroads that could afford it. More than that, they actually deserved it. Now, the reality was that innocent people could, and often did, get hurt during the James Gang's holdups. And though they did lean towards stealing from Republicans and Yankees, especially former Union soldiers turned businessmen, they were opportunists when the chips were down. And there isn't any evidence that the fruits of the gang's robberies ever went anywhere other than the pockets of Jesse and Frank, Cole Younger, and the other gang members. However, good press coverage can go a long way. And it helped that there was a, a largely receptive audience for the legend of Jesse James in the Reconstruction era. And by most accounts, Jesse James was legitimately charismatic, with a witty sense of humor, and his youthful, handsome face made for good pictures in the newspaper. In the press coverage, he was the gang's young, dashing leader. In reality, Frank and Cole Younger did most of the planning, and Jesse was more the public face. Of course, they all participated in the gunplay. Public sympathy for the James brothers increased significantly in 1874 when the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency, union busters and private security, disliked by working people in the North and the South, was hired by one of the offended railroads to track down the gang. After two Pinkerton men were shot dead, while on the trail of the James brothers, Cole Younger and his brother Robert, Alan Pinkerton got personally involved in the case. On Alan Pinkerton's orders, a group of Pinkerton agents raided the James family farm in Missouri in January of 1875. The Pinkertons bombed and burned down the house, resulting in death and serious injury to non-criminal members of the James family, including an eight-year-old half-brother who died in the explosion. Frank and Jesse, though, both escaped. Now, in PR terms... The affair was an absolute disaster for the Pinkertons, and for the railroad who'd hired them. But it helped Jesse James's public image. It's a lot easier to come across as the good guy when the opposing side is the Pinkerton detective agency. For his part, Alan Pinkerton called off the hunt for Jesse and Frank after the raid bombing and fire. Nonetheless, the James Younger gang's run of successful heists came to an abrupt end in September 1876 in Northfield, Minnesota. Lawmen and bounty hunters had been on their tail for nearly 10 years, but what finally brought down the James Younger gang was a group of armed citizens. During a bank robbery in Minnesota, uncooperative bank employees slowed down the robbers and raised the suspicions of the townsfolk. The general public in the Upper Midwest was much less likely to be sympathetic toward former Confederate bank robbers than in, say, Missouri or Kentucky. And when the locals realized that their local bank was being robbed by armed outlaws, the citizens confronted the robbers with the hunting rifles that many had on hand. Following a firefight, a bloody escape, and a manhunt, All but two of the gang were either dead or in law enforcement custody. Cole Younger was sentenced to life in prison, but got out on parole in 1901 after serving 25 years. And the only two gang members still alive and not in custody were, of course, Frank and Jesse James, who covertly made their way into Tennessee under assumed identities. After a couple years living in Tennessee under an alias, Jesse James couldn't leave well enough alone, and he eventually recruited a new gang and resumed his career as a bank robber. At this point in the story, we're in 1882, and public sympathies for Jesse James had started to wane, and the pool of former guerrilla fighters still interested in life as an outlaw was a whole lot smaller, so new recruits tended to be more like common criminals than fearless guerrilla veterans. Two of those recruits Robert Ford and his brother, Charlie, had won Jesse's misplaced confidence. Wanting to cash in on the hefty price tag still on Jesse's head, the Ford brothers plotted a betrayal. In the living room of Jesse's Missouri home, with his wife and two children in the next room, Robert Ford shot an unarmed Jesse James in the back of the head, killing him on the spot. Jesse James's mother, Zerelda, who is reported to have been tough as nails and unwavering in her support for her sons, arranged for Jesse's burial with a tombstone, reading, In loving memory of my beloved son, murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. After ending the life of Jesse James, Robert Ford was surprised to learn that rather than being hailed a hero and bestowed with the $10,000 reward Missouri's governor was offering the uh, equivalent of a couple hundred thousand today. He was instead arrested, tried for murder, and awarded a quick death sentence, only to be pardoned soon after. Ford was himself murdered a few years later in Colorado, and in response to public clamor, Robert Ford's killer likewise received a governor's pardon, which followed a petition signed by thousands of Colorado voters who thought the traitorous coward Robert Ford had it coming. For over a century after Jesse James's death, rumors persisted that Jesse and Robert Ford had in fact faked Jesse's death, allowing Ford to collect the reward and James to make a clean break and live out the remainder of his life in peace and quiet. There were even a couple men in the early to mid-20th century who somewhat convincingly claimed to be Jesse James, one of them even appeared to have the bullet wounds to prove it. But the issue was placed firmly to rest in the 1990s when a DNA test comparing the remains of the man who was buried in Jesse James's grave to a surviving member of the family concluded with reasonable certainty that the man buried in Jesse James's grave was indeed the legendary outlaw. Okay, now for the segue. Uh, we mentioned that Cole Younger, Frank James, and Jesse James, but not Team Rocket for any of you with uh, kids into Pokemon, uh, probably took part in the first armed robbery of an open-for-business bank in peacetime American history. The holdup that we're going to talk about for the remainder of this episode occurred in October 1864 during the Civil War, but it didn't occur in the proximity of any army or battle. The robbery was about as far away from the fighting as you could get and still be in the eastern United States. And we also mentioned that over the course of the James Gang's uh, about decade-long career, the outlaws took in over $200,000 from the various bank robberies, train robberies, stagecoach robberies, etc. Uh, In modern terms, that works out uh, to somewhere in the neighborhood of about $4.5 million, And uh, this is being recorded in August of 2021. Our subject, uh, Civil War-era heist, raked in roughly the same amount, a little under $210,000 in uh, 1864 money, by most estimates, in a single, outrageous, booze-fueled day. That's right. They matched the James Gang's career plunder in a single autumn afternoon. Because today, my friends, we are going to discuss the St. Albans Raid, one of the most curious happenings of the Civil War. The thing is, though, what makes the St. Albans Raid so curious isn't so much the amount of the haul, which is certainly noteworthy, uh, as the setting. You see, St. Albans is near the Canadian border in Vermont, and the raiders weren't... uh, they weren't out to interfere with Union supply lines or destroy an armaments depot or, uh, or hit anything else that you might call a military target. They were after the money. In fact, one of the, the lingering questions about the, the St. Albans raid is whether, whether it's appropriate to consider it, it a military raid at all. Uh, while St. Albans is often called the scene of the northernmost land engagement of the Civil War, you can certainly argue that a more accurate description would be the St. Albans Bank robbery. And that's certainly how the citizens of Vermont felt about the ordeal. Writing for the the Vermont Historical Society, uh, 100 years after the war, uh, and still with a touch of bitterness in his tone, Gary Heath summed up the Vermonters' perspective on the raid and its aftermath like this. Quote, that a group of men could come in from Canada, rob three banks of some $208,000, steal from individuals in the community, both money and horses, herd a considerable group of people onto the public park at the point of guns, and then dash into the neutral country of Canada, and claim that this was simply an act of war, an act of retaliation against acts of the United States armies in the South, where the war was actually being fought, and expect to get away with it was rather beyond the understanding of the people of St. Albans and the government of Vermont. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. We uh, took a lot longer getting this episode out than I would have liked. But for what it's worth, I think that this is a fun show. What we're talking about today, or what we were supposed to be talking about, is the St. Albans Raid. Uh, but you probably noticed that the uh, the intro went a bit long. Um, researching the St. Albans Raid kind of got me thinking about, you know, connections between between bank robbery and the Civil War, and then, you know, you get into the, the James gang, and it's it's easy to get carried away. In retrospect, it probably should have been two separate episodes, but I, I just really liked the connection between the two. And when I realized that the, uh, the St. Albans crew, who were rank amateurs in the art of bank robbery, that they hauled in as much in one day uh, as Jesse James and company uh, did in their... Um, long and distinguished career, well, that just, uh, that seemed like too good of a segue to waste. The St. Albans Raid is, without a doubt, one of the wildest occurrences of the Civil War, so researching this episode was a blast, and I hope everyone out there listening has as much fun with it as I did. All right, that's enough rambling. Uh, Enjoy the St. Albans Raid, and thank you all for your patience and for continuing to listen to the podcast. Okay, so uh, let's get right down to brass tacks. Why in the world would a group of about 20 Confederates covertly travel to Canada and plan a three-act bank heist and raid on a relatively small, peaceful, laid-back town in Vermont? Well, according to historian Charles Morrow Wilson, the St. Albans raid is, quote, one of the most astounding and audacious chapters in the whole astounding and audacious history of the Civil War. End quote. And that audacity was partially inspired by the bleakness of the Confederacy's strategic picture in the fall of 1864. The chances of altering the course of the war were minuscule, and there wasn't anything of any serious military value in St. Albans. But the St. Albans Raid could at least arguably serve three strategic functions, and the Confederacy was desperately in need of some good news. Now, first and most obvious, or maybe not that obvious, was the money. The Confederate government and the army desperately needed any kind of capital that they could get their hands on. To the extent the rebels uh, could still smuggle foreign goods into the country, they needed something to, to pay for them with. Uh, Confederate money was essentially worthless, and the Confederacy wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly looking like a very good credit risk. But Union greenbacks, though certainly affected by wartime inflation, well, they held genuine value. And of course, any gold or silver to be had would be even better. By fall 1864, the Confederacy's financial situation had deteriorated to the point that any... Uh, you know, revenue that could be brought in by robbing banks in Vermont would provide a genuine benefit. Second was the idea that um, if by raiding New England towns, the rebels could convince Washington that there was an actual threat of repeated incursions across the Canadian border, the Union army might be forced to divert some manpower away from its primary goal of capturing Richmond. The Confederacy didn't have the means to transport and supply a force capable of actually capturing and holding towns along the border. Not really anything close at this point in the war. Uh, so, this goal was more about stirring up Yankee civilians until they demanded that blue coats be dispatched for security. And last but not least was the political goal that always seems to be lurking in the background. In October 1864, when the St. Albans raid occurred, the 1864 election was a month away. The Confederacy's last best hope was that a war-weary northern public would elect George McClellan to replace President Lincoln and negotiate an armistice. Other than a few areas in western Maryland and central Pennsylvania, civilians in northern states hadn't really felt the sting of war nearly as much as Dixie. Again, this idea is is that a successful raid on St. Albans, Vermont, maybe followed by a couple encore performances in the following weeks, could frighten or at least inconvenience Northerners enough to vote for George McClellan. Incidentally, Lincoln ended up taking a whopping 76% of the vote in Vermont, a higher percentage than any state but Kansas. So, if anything, the raid steeled the resolve of the locals to stick with Lincoln. But you never know till you try, I guess. Tucked up in New England as it is, and being a fairly small rural state, Vermont came through the Civil War relatively unscathed. That doesn't mean the people of Vermont weren't impacted by the conflict. In the months leading up to the war, a Vermont representative in the U.S. House of Representatives had introduced a resolution calling for negotiation of constitutional amendments, allowing for peaceful preservation of the Union. But the resolution received little support, and when war broke out, Vermonters volunteered to fight. From a population of less than 350,000, Vermont contributed about 40,000 servicemen to the war effort. Uh, with the state fielding 17 infantry and one cavalry regiment, four artillery companies, and a healthy complement of snipers and scouts. Vermont's per capita participation rate was a little bit below uh, its neighbors New York and New Hampshire, but Vermont soldiers generally had a good reputation, and in the 1860s, the state had a genuine martial tradition— Winfield Scott spoke highly of the performance of Vermonters in the War of 1812, and of course the Green Mountain Boys, led by Ethan Allen in the uh, Revolutionary Era, fought Redcoats and New Yorkers. With that said, ordinary civilians in Vermont understandably thought that they didn't have a whole heck of a lot to worry about from the Confederates. It's about 500 miles from the nearest part of the Confederacy in Northern Virginia to Vermont. And Confederate cavalry would have to get through at least Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York to get there, and probably New Jersey and Massachusetts too, depending on the path they took. Between the Army of the Potomac and all those states' militias, the chance of Jeb Stewart threatening Vermont was pretty slim. However, there's another less direct route to get from the Confederate states into Vermont. You can go through Canada. Now, Canada had an interesting side role in the U.S. Civil War, with about 50,000 Canadian soldiers fighting on on both sides of the conflict, some 7,000 of them losing their lives as a result. Canada was still uh, officially part of the British Empire during the war, and uh, without going into too much detail, uh, Canada itself wasn't exactly a single united entity. Uh, You had the modern Atlantic provinces and British Columbia all existing as separate colonies, and then the uh, province of Canada consisted of the more populated areas of Quebec and Ontario, all under the umbrella of British North America. But for simplicity's sake, uh, we'll just call Canada Canada. Like Britain, Canada was formally neutral while their unruly cousins smashed each other in the face. Early on in 1861, a proclamation issued by Queen Victoria acknowledged the southern states as a belligerent, with the rights that entailed, but stopped there, not recognizing Confederate sovereignty or taking a side. Even with official neutrality, Canada and the U.S. had very close economic and cultural ties, so it was inevitable that the war would have some impact on Canada. Uh, economically, the U.S. Civil War boosted demand for Canadian exports in the North, and Canadian shipping interests benefited greatly from the loss in market share suffered by American shippers due to the increased risks raised by Confederate privateers. As we mentioned in a prior episode, there was uh, a substantial pro-Confederate sentiment uh, among the British ruling class. Um, that was much less the case among Canadians, who were more pro-Union. Before and during the war, a sizable portion of escaped slaves took refuge in Canada, which was typically considered the last stop on the Underground Railroad. And a substantial majority of the Canadian fighters who volunteered for action in the U.S. Civil War did so on the Union side. Uh, In fact, if I remember correctly, one of Canada's favorite sons, Wolverine, was among the Maple Leaf volunteers in the Federal Army. Uh, Incidentally, one of several factors that dissuaded the British government from recognizing Confederate uh, independence was that they didn't want to get dragged into a war defending Canada from an invasion by an already mobilized U.S. Army. Notwithstanding Canada's generally pro-Union leanings, there were a couple instances of what Yankees saw as Canadian assistance of Confederates that resulted in friction. The first was that Canadian uh, maritime ports, most notably Halifax, were favorite stopping off points for Confederate blockade runners. The Confederate ships took advantage of the neutrality of Canadian ports to arrange for maintenance and repairs, to obtain cargo for smuggling back into the South, and of course to unload Southern exports. For their part, Canadian merchants could turn a tidy profit buying Southern cotton cheap and then reselling it in Britain. More exciting, though, uh, is the topic of this episode, the uh, the time that a group of rebel soldiers working with Montreal-based Confederate operatives launched a raid-slash-bank heist from Phillipsburg, Quebec, into St. Albans, Vermont. The leader and mastermind of the St. Albans raid was Lieutenant Bennett Young of Kentucky. Young had served in the Confederate cavalry under John Morgan before being captured in Ohio in 1863. After escaping from a prison camp and finding refuge in Canada, Young hooked up with Montreal-based Confederate agents who helped arrange for him to sneak back into the Confederacy. Along the way, Bennett Young came up with an ingeniously devious plan to have Confederate soldiers travel to Canada and from there plan and execute bank robberies across the border into the U.S. In 1861 or 1862 when private property still uh, mostly wasn't uh, considered fair game, except on the high seas, there's a good chance that that, that kind of scheme would have, would have been viewed as dishonorable and beneath the dignity of the Confederate Army. But by 1864, Richmond thought Bennett Young's bank robbery proposal sounded awesome. Uh, Young received official approval, an officer's commission and authorization to recruit some other Confederates willing to try their hand at bank robbery. For the first target, Lt. Young selected the small town of St. Albans, Vermont. St. Albans sits on Lake Champlain about 15 miles from the Canadian border. The town was unlikely to be defended, or to be on its guard, and it was easy to get in and out of St. Albans by train, boat, or horseback. So St. Albans seemed like the perfect target— for what was intended to be the first of many Confederate cross-border raids. The overall plan for the raid was pretty straightforward. Young and about 20 other Confederates would rendezvous in Phillipsburg, Quebec, which is about two miles north of the U.S. border on the eastern shore of Lake Champlain and about 50 miles southeast of Montreal, or about 80 kilometers if you're into that sort of thing. Phillipsburg to St. Albans is pretty much a straight shot, going south down the lake's eastern coast. Or shore, I guess. Uh, I don't think lakes have coasts. Either way, the raiders could get from point A to point B, and back again, by land or by boat. Starting in Phillipsburg, the raiders would separately travel to St. Albans over the course of a couple days, to avoid arousing suspicions. Their cover story was that they were outdoorsmen, members of a hunting club who had come to town for hunting and fishing. To St. Albans residents, that story wouldn't be unusual because the town was a regular destination for hunting trips. Once in St. Albans, the raiders would hang out for a couple days and stay at a hotel. This would give them the opportunity to closely inspect the town and scope out its banks, working out the finer details of the heist. Once they were comfortable and confident with the plan, They'd pull off the robberies, set the town on fire, and make a getaway back to Phillipsburg. Now, if you're wondering, if you're wondering why Bennett Young thought it was necessary to put St. Albans to the flame, uh, he had two reasons. The first was, uh, well, it was simple revenge. The Yankees had burned farms, homes, and businesses in Georgia and the Shenandoah Valley, so now it was Vermont's turn. And the second was that they thought that widespread fires would distract any local authorities, making escape a little easier. The chain of events that constitute the St. Albans Raid uh, began on October 12, 1864, when Bennett Young arrived in St. Albans and checked into the Tremont Hotel. And uh, as a general rule, checking into a hotel was usually not a high priority for Civil War Cavaliers raiding an enemy town, but like I said, the St. Albans raid plays out more like a bank heist than a typical cavalry raid. So Young started by taking a long, leisurely walk around St. Albans, evaluating avenues of ingress and egress, potential hazards, and most importantly, the town's three banks, the Franklin County Bank, the First National Bank, and St. Albans Bank. Gradually, over the next 10 days, Bennett Young's crew arrived in St. Albans, staying in the Lafayette and American hotels, in addition to the Tremont, and identifying themselves as Canadians, like they were backpacking through Europe or something. Uh, They usually arrived two at a time, most traveling by train. Histories uh, of the raid aren't 100% uh, sure exactly how many raiders there were in total, but it's somewhere between 19 and 22. Uh, All but one of the raiders were in their late teens or twenties, and as far as we know, none of them had any sort of criminal history, and certainly no bank heist experience. During the week of surveillance, the southerners tried to remain inconspicuous, and to avoid gathering together in groups large enough to draw attention or to seem out of place. Uh, A few of them were very talkative with the locals, mostly discussing guns and horses Uh, which were topics um, that Vermonters and Southerners uh, might have a shared interest. And and the locals generally, generally agreed after the fact that the Confederates had all seemed very friendly. So Lieutenant Young's initial plan was for the raid itself to be conducted on October 18th. The raiders would hit three separate banks at the same time, set some roaring fires, and make a hasty getaway north. Ultimately, he chose to push the event back one day because a group of Union Army procurement agents came through on the 18th, looking to acquire as many of Vermont's famous Morgan horses as they could get their hands on. And their arrival threw off the schedule, and of course, uh, the knowledge that a Union Army presence was in the area wasn't exactly reassuring. But federal horse buyers were actually quite fortuitous for the Raiders. Um, The Army spent a small fortune on nearly every spare horse in the area, uh, at least 700 or so, and a lot of that money ended up deposited in the three banks in St. Albans, leaving them more flush with cash than they might have otherwise been. On the 19th, with the Union agents having left the area, Bennett Young and his crew were ready to get to work. At precisely three in the afternoon, when the banks would be near closing time and the tellers would therefore hopefully be counting their tills, the Confederates began their three simultaneous robberies, hitting the First National, the Bank of Franklin County and St. Albans Bank. All three banks were on the town's main street and relatively close to each other. The Confederates split up into essentially four teams, four or five men for each bank, and seven to stay outside, keeping an eye out for potential interference and manage any locals who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, for the specific details of the robbery, I will be relying uh, quite a bit on uh, historian Charles Morrow Wilson's 1961 essay, The Hit and Run Raid. We'll start with the First National Bank, since the robbery included three semi-noteworthy figures. The leader of the raid was Caleb Wallace, a nephew of former U.S. Vice President John Crittenden. And his second in command was Alameda Bruce, nephew of Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. And appearing as an innocent bystander was octogenarian, hearing-impaired General John Nason, a locally well-known veteran of the War of 1812. Uh, The robbery started directly with Wallace walking in the front door, to the counter, and pointing his cocked revolver in the face of the bank clerk. Then, with little ceremony, another confederate scrambled behind the counter, and the looting commenced. Uh, The robbers helped themselves to an excellent haul, which consisted of banknotes, U.S. bonds, and greenbacks valued around $98,000. It would have been even better, except that a rebel robber asked the clerk about the contents of a couple bags of coins, the clerk told him that they were copper pennies. And the Confederate ripped open a bag and verified the answer's accuracy. And, and so he concluded that the bags were too heavy and let them be. As it turned out, though, he checked the wrong bag. The coins in the other bag were gold. The first national team ran into a little resistance when a scrapping local by the name of Bill Blaisdell coincidentally strolled into the bank and, without much hesitation, wrestled to the ground, the Confederate guarding the door. Blaisdell got the better of the scuffle, but had to surrender when a couple of other Confederates trained their revolvers on him and made clear that they were about to fire. Now, there's a funny, though uh, maybe apocryphal, story that comes in here. Now, you remember John Nason, the old War of 1812 veteran. Well, the story goes that throughout the robbery, General Nason sat quietly reading his newspaper either oblivious or just unconcerned. But when the Confederates who had been raiding the till ran to assist the the door guard, who was being roughed up by Blaisdell, uh, Nason is supposed to have said, Now, boys, two-on-one's not fair. Then, when the robbery concluded and the five bank robbers fled the premises, Nason uh, momentarily put down his newspaper uh, that he had been reading and calmly asked, what gentlemen were those? So at the same time as the First national stick up, uh, 3 p.m., another team of five Confederates, led by a man calling himself Tom Collins, hit up the St. Albans Bank. In this case, when the Confederates entered the bank uh, near closing time, the clerk didn't really think much of it. He had uh, amicably chatted with at least three of the supposed Canadian sportsmen earlier in the week. But he realized the circumstances were serious when he noticed the the two large caliber Colt revolvers being pointed menacingly in his direction. And the men smelled strongly of booze, which generally doesn't help the stability of a given situation. The clerk, uh, Bishop was his name, Um, Thinking quickly, rushed for the bank's back room, where another clerk was working. Not a bad idea, but it didn't work out for him. The Confederates secured the door before the two clerks could get themselves locked inside, and they spent the rest of the robbery being being held at pistol point by uh, two of the robbers, while the other three robbers rifled through the bank's reserves. Charles, uh, Charles Morrow emphasizes what, quote, an appallingly bad job of bank looting the amateurs on the St. Albans Bank robbery crew were doing. The, their total haul was about $60,000, which really doesn't sound too bad, especially since we're, you know, we're talking about 1864 money. Uh, it consisted of banknotes, some silver and cash. Uh, some of which was appropriated from two bank customers who happened into the bank at the wrong time. Morrow, though, notes that they missed $100,000 worth of U.S. bonds and banknotes that were in the safe that the robbers hurriedly picked through, and they also left on the table gold certificates, and for no discernible reason, a significant pile of gold coins that were also in the same safe. But throughout the Bank of St. Albans uh, job, Tom Collins, the team leader, kept the two clerks and two customers who had wandered in, uh, kept them in the bank's back room, lecturing to them about how the raid was uh, recompense for General Sheridan's crimes in the Shenandoah Valley. While Collins, or whatever his his real name is, um, while he was giving his speech, he was not taking any of the bank's money, and. This leads to Morrow's conclusion about the robbery uh, of St. Albans Bank, quote, The robbery time was 12 minutes, most of them filled with talk, End quote. And the final of the three banks was the Franklin County Bank, also on St. Albans' main street. The robbery began with the Confederate team leader, uh, Bill Hutchinson uh, of Kentucky, casually strolling up to the bank counter and asking the clerk... Marcus Beardsley, uh, about the current exchange rate between gold and greenbacks. The clerk didn't know, but he recommended Hutchinson speak with a St. Albans merchant who had just walked in. The merchant, J.R. Armington was his name, was indeed able to assist Hutchinson in uh, exchanging a couple uh, gold coins for uh, paper U.S. dollars. At that point, Armington, the uh, merchant, left the bank with another local, with whom the cashier had uh, also been conversing. Hutchinson, the Confederate leader, and Clerk Beardsley, along with another friendly local, uh, then chit-chatted affably for a few more minutes, until finally four more Confederates entered the bank and approached the three conversationalists, as if to join in in shooting the breeze. Uh, But they didn't say anything. Instead, two men produced their pistols and drew down on Clerk Beardsley. Now here, Beardsley was, was genuinely confused. He wasn't sure if the silent men were playing some sort of joke or maybe they were mentally incompetent. Uh, but then Bill Hutchinson almost apologetically explained that the five of them were with the Confederate Army and their intent was to rob the bank and to raise St. Albans. Uh, When it dawned on the two St. Albans residents that it was indeed a robbery, they tried to make a run for it. But the the rebels caught them and forced them into the bank vault. And Bennett Young is also supposed to have demanded that they swear a loyalty oath to the Confederacy. Then, of course, the rebels helped themselves to the cash, bonds, and gold that were on hand. Historian Morrow notes that this team also did not have a particularly good eye for loot. Quote, They too left twice as much as they took, approximately $50,000, and made a sprinting exit. End quote. Fortunately for Clerk Beardsley and his companion in the bank vault, J.R. Armington, the merchant who had, uh, had known the price of gold, re-entered the bank and heard the two prisoners stuck in the vault and was able to release them. Okay, so that's the the three-for-one St. Albans bank robberies. Uh, Charles Morrow concludes of the heist, quote, their timing and general strategy were superb. Their robbery technique was almost uniformly bad, but at least it was bloodless, End quote. Okay, so now we've discussed all three of the St. Albans banks that were held up by the Confederates. But you'll remember that there was a fourth team, And that was the team led by the overall ringleader, Bennett Young. The fourth team's job was to act as lookouts on Main Street and to escort the locals onto the nearby village green until the robbers finished their job. At the same time, they would also be tasked with stealing horses for the soon-to-come escape. Uh, This portion of the raid started with a bang, literally. One of the raiders fired his pistol into the air to demand attention. Uh, in fact, the, the lookout team on Main Street was uh, pretty loud and unruly throughout the whole affair. A Vermont newspaper said it like this quote, During the period of their stay, they uttered fearful threats and a good deal of blasphemy. They had fired their pistols many times with the greatest impunity. End quote. Now, a resident of St. Albans initially thought that this was just a, a group of drunk young men goofing off until Bennett Young emphatically proclaimed, We are Confederate soldiers, and you are my prisoners. Now, the announcement about being Confederate soldiers is kind of an important detail, because if the raid is indeed a legitimate military exercise, then the raiders are belligerent soldiers, entitled to be treated as such if captured. If they're not, well, they're just common criminals. So whereas the bank robbers themselves didn't encounter uh, too terribly much resistance and, and hadn't needed to, uh, to shoot anyone, the same could not be said for the lookout slash horse-stealing team. Oh, and they were also the, the squad responsible for um, igniting St. Albans. So it was a pretty ambitious itinerary. Uh, the first shooting victim was Collins Huntington, who was traveling down Main Street on his way to pick his kids up from school a raider, brandishing a pistol, directed Huntington to move to the village green. And Huntington refused, and the Confederate then shot him in the abdomen. Uh, Thankfully for Huntington, and for his children, uh, the bullet didn't hit anything vital, so uh, he was uh, therefore able to comply with the order and to survive the encounter. Another resident of St. Albans was shot while trying to apprehend the Confederate in the process of stealing a horse. And he also took a bullet to the abdomen, and he also survived. And the third man who was shot was uh, actually not from Vermont. Linus Morrison was a builder from nearby in New Hampshire, and he was in town uh, with his crew to construct a boarding house. Morrison initially attempted to, to kind of organize his guys into an informal um, resistance to the raid, Uh, But when that didn't work, he decided to move out of the danger zone. And while he was doing so, Bennett Young fired his revolver at Edward Fuller, a stable owner who had objected to his stable being relieved of several horses. To give voice to his uh, objection, Fuller had produced his his own pistol and took a shot at Bennett Young. Fuller, though, was not carrying a revolver. He was carrying a one-shot Derringer. That one shot was a misfire, leaving Fuller effectively defenseless and with no other choice but to surrender the stable and attempt escape. Bennett Young's shot, which was intended for Edward Fuller, hit Alinus Morrison, again in the abdomen. Uh, Sadly, that shot uh, did hit something vital, and when Morrison died of the wound the next day, he became the sole confirmed fatality of the St. Albans Raid. Now, as we mentioned, Bennett Young's team was also responsible for burning St. Albans. But unlike the fundraising endeavor, the arson aspect of the raid was an utter failure. The plan was to start the fires using glass bottles uh, that they were all carrying, which were filled with what they described as Greek fire. The compound was supposed to ignite when exposed to the air. Uh, so they would simply throw the bottles at a building and watched the flames uh, build as the bottles shattered. Uh, Sort of like a a Molotov cocktail, but uh, without any initial spark required. Uh, When they broke the bottles, though, nothing really happened. There may or may not have been a a little smoke, but but no fire. So the town of St. Albans escaped the pitiable fate that had befallen uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Gary Heath's account of the St. Albans raid from the Vermont Historical Society, puts some context to the attempted arson, because it it wasn't just about revenge. The fires were also intended to serve a strategic purpose. Quote, "...had these fires got really started, the attempt of the community to stop them or contain them would have made it just about impossible to make any real attempt to chase and capture these criminals. In other words..." It was an attempt to keep the people busy while the Raiders escaped, a tactic worthy of the James Gang, the Youngers, or other bank robbers, end quote. Uh, Avoiding resistance has obvious benefits, and Bennett Young and company were also counting on the fact that the male population, normally present in St. Albans, uh, was uh, lower than usual. Many of the young men... Uh, of course, were with the Union Army, and a sizable chunk of middle-aged men were out of town for the Vermont legislature session. But St. Albans wasn't quite as devoid of Union soldiers and militia as the Raiders might have hoped. George Conger was a federal cavalry captain from St. Albans, and he happened to be back in town on furlough and caught word of what was going on. So while the banks are being pilfered, and Bennett Young's team are doing their thing on Main Street. Conger was spreading news of the raid around St. Albans and trying to round up a group of armed men willing and able to offer the rebel raiders some resistance. Okay, so this is the point where the four stories we just kind of went through and the four teams of Confederate raiders uh, reconverge as they all uh, united on Main Street, where the dozen or more stolen horses had been collected just in time to avoid what Captain George Conger intended as a lethal confrontation. And loudly and excitedly, they galloped out of town, a few rebel yells thrown in for good measure. Another resident of St. Albans, Vermont, in 1864, decided that he would not let the rebel yells be the final word on the day. Wilder Gibson, a horse trader who had been drinking in a Main Street bar during the commotion, exited the bar with his trusty rifle. He patiently took aim and waited for a good shot. Witnesses on the scene reported that Gibson's rifle found its mark, slaying the unlucky Confederate riding in the rear of the group. But Charles Morrow refers to the kill as unconfirmed, and other sources say the rebel was uh, able to recover in Canada. Now, regardless of whether one... Uh, Of 20 or so raiders had been tagged, Captain George Conger didn't like the idea of just letting them ride off into the sunset. So, as Bennett Young and his crew rushed for the Canadian border, across the Mississippi River, and I'm probably not saying that right, uh, Conger and the St. Albans men he recruited were not far behind in pursuit. The rebels split up into probably four or five smaller groups to evade detection riding quickly and occasionally attempting to burn bridges with their ineffective Greek fire. The plan was to get across the border, lay low till the heat died down, and then regroup in Montreal. Congressmen weren't quite fast enough to catch the rebels before they made it into Canada, uh, which they did after nightfall on the 19th. And as a result, the St. Albans raid, or bank robbery, whichever you like, also becomes a diplomatic incident. Because Captain George Conger, riding in hot pursuit, crossed the border too, making the question of whether the Confederate raiders were lawful belligerents or common criminals a very important one. If the former, then they're Confederate soldiers who have escaped into a neutral country. If the latter, they're simple fugitives subject to ordinary extradition. The uh, Vermont Historical Society's Gary Heath is undoubtedly biased in the direction of common criminals. He writes, Let it be admitted at once that the rebels did announce publicly and frequently that they represented the Confederate states, and that this was an act of war. But would such an announcement made by men whose breath, according to witnesses, smelled very strongly of alcoholic beverages, be believed by those who heard them? Or would they be most apt to think that this was just a means of attempting to cover up what was actually an act of robbery and terrorism? They were not in uniform. They did not display any orders. They did not carry flags. Certainly, they were not marching in an orderly fashion, as would be fit an army or part of an army. And I repeat, reliable evidence of those robbed would indicate that these men had been drinking. End quote. Now, uh, if you'll indulge a uh, brief side note, two things stood out to me uh, from that quote that that we just read. First, uh, I was surprised to see um, Gary Heath use the word terrorism since uh, he was writing in the early 1960s. And I thought that that term didn't become kind of part of the the common vernacular uh, until the 1970s. But I was wrong. In fact, the term terrorism, uh, in the way we you know, we kind of generally use it, uh, dates back to the French Revolution and was first used to describe the Jacobins. John Adams mentioned terrorism in 1799 during his presidency, writing, quote, Terrorism cannot be practiced in America so easily as in Europe, where the issue of a battle determines the fate of a nation and the capture of a city involves the submission of a whole country, end quote. And not to be outdone, just a few days after taking the presidential oath in 1801, Thomas Jefferson wrote, quote, "Nothing will be spared on my part to harmonize our system and to render the republican basis so solid as to defy the machinations of terrorism, illuminatiism, etc." End quote. So there you have it. President Jefferson was worried about the machinations of the Illuminati. And George Washington may very well be the only American president not to talk about terrorism. And the other thing about Gary Heath's quote is, uh, I guess it's, it's funny to me how he he, he he cites the fact that the rebel bank robbers had been drinking as evidence that they were not acting as soldiers. Like he's, you know, he's assuming that the the two are mutually exclusive. But returning to our story. Okay, so the... um. Bennett Young Gang escaped across the Canadian border. Would-be Sheriff George Conger and his posse of angry Vermonters follow him across. And as far as Conger uh, is concerned, he's, he's in hot pursuit of criminal bank robbers, and he has every right to drag them back across the border to stand trial. The thing is, though, we're in Canada now. And so the Canadian authorities, well, they get a say in the matter, and... They weren't exactly thrilled with the idea of a hundred or so armed Americans invading Canadian sovereignty and presuming to take custody of, you know, either enemy combatants or or fugitive bank robbers, who were rightfully now within the jurisdiction of Canada's government. Um, and for an account of the Canadian perspective, we'll turn to an uh, an edited quote from historian John Kazars' essay. Canadian view of Confederate raid on St. Albans. Quoting Kazar When the Confederates, under their leader Lieutenant Bennett H. Young, continued across the Canadian border, Conger's posse pursued them, and near Phillipsburg, Quebec, the Vermonters seized Young himself. The spirited efforts of the Americans to return the raiders forcibly to Vermont without consulting the Canadian authorities were resisted by the latter. End quote. So to kind of sum up and annotate, Conger uh, and his guys are tracking down the different groups of, of rebels who had split up and were trying to hide out in Quebec, um, occasionally exchanging gunfire with them. Um, two separate pairs of robbers were captured at Elder's Tavern in Standbridge, Quebec. Two more were seized while hiding in a barn near Waterloo. Um, then they caught Bennett Young with a handful of accomplices in a boarding house near Phillipsburg the innkeeper having having uh, ratted them out to the search party. Uh, Young was arrested and put in a carriage to be carried off, but he, he threw the driver out of his seat, took off with the team. Now, he didn't make it far, though, and then he was promptly rearrested. Of course, uh, George Conger thinks that, that in this whole thing, he, he's doing the Lord's work, but Canadian officials were understandably irritated that that they were being completely disregarded, and then they learned that Union Major General John Dix is in Burlington, Vermont, organizing a detachment of federal regular infantry to cross the border, supposedly in in hot pursuit uh, of the rebel bank robbers. Kazar notes that by that point the Canadian authorities well they had seen enough. A British Army officer was on hand when Bennett Young was captured, and rather than risk having Young and his accomplices lynched on Canadian soil by an angry Yankee mob, the officer forced Conger to stand down, ordered custody of the rebel bank robbers be turned over to the Canadian officials, and kicked Captain George Conger and his posse out of Canada. Uh, Again, quoting Kazar quote, Regardless of previous Canadian sympathies towards the American belligerents, there was general resentment expressed towards the actual pursuit into Canada by Captain Conger. The Montreal Gazette's correspondent in St. John's noted that, quote, considerable indignation is expressed against the troops of Yankees who crossed the line and who conducted themselves, it was said, in a reckless and disgraceful manner. The paper also pointedly compared the manners of Captain Conger to the gentlemanly demeanor of the prisoners. The Toronto Globe, usually pro Northern in sympathy, conservatively estimated that Dix had, this is uh, Kazar quoting the Toronto Globe, rather overstepped the bounds of law and prudence. End quote. Now, it's worth pointing out that once this whole chain of events got started uh, with the robberies, Everything went down really fast. The stick-up occurred on October 19th, which was a Wednesday. Uh, on Thursday, Lord Monk, the uh, Governor General of uh, British North America, uh, he directed the local commanding officer to intervene and take custody of the rebels. And then by Saturday, 14 rebels were in Canadian custody, along with $87,000 in loot, which, of course, leaves like uh, 120000 unaccounted for. Once the rebels were in Canadian custody, the American consul in Montreal didn't waste any time demanding that an extradition hearing be scheduled so that the, you know, the prisoners could be turned over to the United States. And the British slash Canadians were uh, more than happy to hold a hearing. Um, There was a treaty in place for just that sort of thing, after all. In 1864, though, there weren't heavy-handed American intelligence agencies Um, around to lean on foreign officials and make sure they came to the right decision in extradition cases. And Queen Victoria's government in Canada, having been insulted by Captain Conger's unauthorized crossing of the border and General Dix's uh, contemplated invasion, well, it was not feeling particularly sympathetic toward U.S. demands. So the hearing goes forward. The Lincoln administration hires one of the most prominent lawyers in Canada to argue for extradition. And the Canadian judge rules that Bennett Young and his crew, when they robbed those three banks in St. Albans, were absolutely without a doubt acting as soldiers engaged in operations on behalf of the Confederate government and were therefore entitled to treatment as bona fide belligerents, not felon. And well, because... Canada is officially neutral in the conflict, well, there's, you know, there's no cause for extradition. And as if with the intention of aggravating the federal government and Vermont historians for at least the next century, the judge ordered the rebel soldiers released. Let the boys go, eh? Uh, but they did send the $88,000 back to St. Albans. So what about the, uh, well, the other 120000 or so? And again, we're going to quote the Vermont Historical Society's Gary Heath. Quote, "...I believe I am correct in saying that a considerable portion of the money was turned over to Confederate representatives in Canada. But I believe I am also correct that not all of it went that way. There is even some evidence of slightly sticky fingers among some Canadians, which may well account for the ease in which the raiders managed to escape from jail." and nearly make their way beyond the power of Canada to bring them to trial, End quote. So I think what the, uh, you know, the Vermont Historical Society's Mr. Heath is saying here is that the Canadians, who uh, you know, probably also produce pretty low-quality maple syrup, well, they accepted bribes to allow the Confederate raiders to escape justice. Secretary of State William Seward's message to British diplomats Perfectly encapsulates Washington's utter exasperation with the Canadian court's ruling. Quote, it is impossible to consider those proceedings as either legal, just, or friendly towards the United States. End quote. Now legal and just are arguable. There's a case to be made either way. But Secretary of State Seward can rest assured that the extradition proceedings that followed the St. Albans raid were most definitely not intended to be friendly towards the United States. So with that message having been sent, the Canadian public and local officials made clear to the Confederate government that they did not want any more involvement in the American Civil War. Allowing rebels to plan their heist in Canada and then receive sanctuary upon making their escape back into Canada starts to look less like neutrality and more like siding with the South. To drive home the point, Canadian law enforcement, and I don't know if the uh, Mounties were around yet, but that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm picturing. Uh, Canadian law enforcement re-arrested five of the previously released rebels and indicted them for violation of Canada's laws on neutrality. Uh, The Confederate government got the message and abandoned plans for any additional... Canada-based operations. The Confederates uh, did not achieve their objective of relieving pressure on Richmond by triggering reassignment of Union forces to protect the northern border, though the state government of Vermont recruited a, a couple cavalry companies to spend the final six months of the war effectively playing cards at the border. And the whole incident was officially put to bed in 1871 with the Treaty of Washington, which also resolved American claims relating to the CSS Alabama. The commission appointed to resolve outstanding claims held that the U.S. was not entitled to any additional compensation arising from the St. Albans raid. And, well, that was that. And after the war, Bennett Young was pointedly excluded from the proclamation of amnesty. So he hung out in uh, Ireland for a few years and studied law. When he returned to the U.S. later in the decade, he moved to Louisville and made a name for himself as a very successful lawyer. He made a a great deal of money, and having put bank robbery behind him, he spent close to 40 years as a philanthropist, believe it or not, uh, endowing an orphanage, a school for the blind, and a public library, among other things. Now, before wrapping up this episode, I have a... uh, I guess a hypothetical to ponder. What if, instead of Bennett Young and his collection of inexperienced Confederate amateurs, the St. Albans raid had been carried out by bona fide professional outlaws, like the James Younger Gang, for instance, or even just rough-around-the-edges Missouri guerrilla warfare veterans? I guess imagine an alternate history in which, instead of Bennett Young and company— being chased back into Canada, and promptly taken into custody, you had Frank and Jesse James and Cole Younger and their crew on the loose in rural New England in 1864. Now, the best I can say is that, uh, well, that scenario would have resulted in uh, considerably more chaos and, and almost certainly more bloodshed, and may have actually, you know, achieved the, the temporary uh, reallocation of a regiment or two of Union troops. It's one thing when, when that sort of, uh, Nonsense is going on uh, out on the frontier in Missouri, but you know, in New England, that's that's quite a bit more shocking. And that brings us back to the the fundamental question: Is the St. Albans Raid actually a raid at all, or is it more fairly characterized as an an old fashioned bank robbery that just happened to be carried out during during the war by men affiliated with the Confederacy? Did the Canadian judge make the correct ruling? Now, for what it's worth, I think uh, I think the the whole affair is indeed uh, more accurately described as a bank heist. And, and uh, I'll let uh, Gary Heath, whose whose essays bitterness both amused and uh, convinced me, um, and who we've already quoted a few times, uh, I'll let him have the final say, if for no other reason than that he concludes his thought with an excellent word that I will almost certainly be adding to my vocabulary. Quoting Heath. These men did not enter as raiders or as representatives of the Confederate states. Instead, they took it upon themselves to visit St. John's, Quebec, study St. Albans' papers, learn as much about the town as they could. Then they came to St. Albans, not in a group, but in twos or threes, Some of them were in the community several days. They studied the city. They figured out the best day, the best time of the day, and then struck. And they did not strike at the arsenal. They struck at the banks. They did nothing that would hurt the fighting power of Vermont or of the United States. Instead, they stole and made way with $208,000. It was not an act of war, but an act of brigandage. Well, that is our take on the St. Albans raid. I hope everybody enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed researching it. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Great with an E. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.